Johnson over to Ramsey. Leader Lesanoff gets checked by Ramsey. McClanahan is there. The puck is still loose. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Hey, this is Matt. And this is Adam. And welcome to American Moments. Today, we're going to cover probably the greatest moment in sports history. At least if you're an American. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is American Moments. Well, that's true. I guess that's a good point. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that is the Miracle on Ice. So if you're wondering, what is the Miracle on Ice? Well, it's really the ultimate underdog story for America. David beats Goliath. That's exactly what I was just going to say. David versus Goliath. We're two and two. That's right. (laughs) Uh, It was the 1980 Winter Olympic hockey game that pitted the USA versus the USSR. Also known as the Soviet Union, the Big Red Bear. That's right. Why is this an American moment? To understand this, you have to understand. You have to understand that it was 37 years ago, in the heart of the Cold War. It was the two superpowers in the world versus each other. At the same time, they were two very different teams. We mentioned David versus Goliath. The USSR had won six of the last seven Olympic hockey golds. I mean, they were they, dominant. They, they were Joe Montana, the 49ers. I mean, before free agency. I mean, they, they were amazing. I mean, they were amateurs, but professionals were not allowed in, in the Olympics at that time. But they were all in the Red Army, and they all played for the Soviet League, which was basically the NHL in Russia. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get into this in more detail a little further down the line, but, the, but they basically they scared everybody. And the U.S. was not. They were all amateurs. The average age of the team was 21. And they were not expected to win. They were not expected to even compete. And in one of the best hockey games ever, we beat them. Yep. You know, it's funny because I, I watched Miracles, one of my favorite movies, and and it's made by Disney, and it kind of comes off as campy. You know, it, it's like a such a feel good story. But in doing research for this, it really a lot of that stuff is right on. Disney didn't really take that many liberties. With it. I mean, this is really just an amazing story, and we'll get more into it. Is. it you know, into why. It was just such an unbelievable and unlikely outcome. Maybe we should set the stage a little bit, a little bit about where America was at that point. Right, and that I mean that leads into why it was such a great story. Mm-hmm. At the time, the U.S. was kind of at a crossroads. It was at a point in the Cold War where there was a lot of uncertainty in the U.S. There was a lot of turmoil going on. For example, prior to 1980, there were a couple big events that had shaken the core of what it is to be an American. Um, Watergate, that's a great mm-hmm. change how everyone perceives politicians. They're, they're not these people to be put on a pedestal anymore. They definitely have flaws, and can you trust them was the question. Yeah, we learned to, to trust our presidents a lot less than we had. Yeah, it changed everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we're, not only that, but we had a lot of egg on our face from mm-hmm. Watergate. The other was our loss in Vietnam. Really never lost a war before, and Vietnam was a long, drawn-out war that... You know, we say it was a draw, but a draw is not a win. And it really wasn't a draw. You go to Vietnam now, and it, it was There's no communist Saigon. Vietnam. There's <laughs> no Saigon. It's City now. That's yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that was in the heart of the Cold War. 
On top of that, losing confidence in both our, our leaders and the choices we make. You know, as a nation, there was a lot of other things going on. For example, there was the Iranian Revolution that happened in 1979, which basically cut off any oil production out of Iran at that time. As a result, there was a shortage of oil that we felt dramatically in the U.S. as, as one of, if not the largest consumer of oil in the world at that time. Well, a lot of that was, it, people looked at Carter, Jimmy Carter, our president, and they really didn't think he was tough. They thought they could bully him around, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. right. A lot of this happened because of uh, of the Cold War that was going on, but Jimmy Carter's responses were generally not as aggressive, I guess, for lack of a better word, that um, presidents had been in the past, and and actually after, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, Jimmy Carter just seemed like a wonderful human being, like a, a great, right. a great dude. But I mean, he's not the—he's pretty much the polar opposite of what came right after him with Ronald Reagan. Completely. I mean, he was a big fuzzy teddy bear, and and, <laughs> and, and, and I feel like the the Soviets knew that. I mean, the Iranians knew that. Right. Well, I mean, back just one more thing on the on oil prices. You know, oil prices had almost tripled in a year. Really? Uh huh. Yeah, the price of a barrel front at the beginning of 1979 was 15.85. And it went up to $40 by the end of 80. Now, to give you reference, a, a barrel of oil yesterday was $52. So, wow. I mean, that's 35 years, 36 years ago, that price. That hurts. Yeah. Yeah. And people, people were standing in line to get gas because there wasn't enough. That set a tone of fear in the U.S. that we are not going to be able to sustain our, our way of life. Mm-hmm. Additionally, on top of that, as you mentioned, there was the Iranian hostage situation. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, in 1979, 52 Americans were held hostage in the American embassy in Tehran for over a year. Again, that's the longest that someone had been, a group like that or an embassy had been held hostage. It it made people nervous. And Carter wasn't doing anything about it. Basically, they sat in the the building for over a year until they were finally released. Well, they, they didn't they have a rescue mission that they tried to do where that they sent a, a bunch of choppers and it, it totally failed. I mean, it was just everything. It was so emblematic huh. of Carter's presidency, and you just feel bad for the guy. Oh but, yeah, but it was uh, it was a big deal until Ben Affleck, of course, you know, <laughs> went, went, went and saved them all and won an Oscar. Yeah, and won an Oscar for right. it. Actually, he didn't do that. We just, he just the, those were the six people who were who, who got out, right? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that that's completely irrelevant. Well, I'm all over the place yeah. because there's so many things that were going on there. But you know, we talk about Carter and this oil shortage, and it's labeled now the energy crisis of 1979. Carter had planned a speech around this energy crisis. Thank you, yeah. energy <laughs> crisis we're having. It's now known as the crisis of confidence speech. The intent was. To inspire Americans, and I use inspire with air quotes. Yeah, he's, he's using some really great air quotes right now. To conserve energy. Mm-hmm. And Carter delivered it. Um, it didn't quite have the effect they wanted. I mean, I just want to read a couple lines from yeah. it. And you just think about if you had an American president that said this to the American public now, how it would be received. Here it is. I want to talk to you right now about a fundamental threat to American democracy. I do not refer to the outward strength of America, a nation that is at peace tonight, everywhere in the world, with unmatched economic power and military might. The threat is nearly invisible in ordinary ways. The threat is nearly invisible in ordinary ways. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis of confidence. 
message that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national world. In a nation that was proud of hard work, strong families, close-knit communities, and our faith in God, too many of us now tend to worship self-indulgence and consumption. Wow. I mean, that's crazy, right? Yeah, it is crazy. Yeah. That's basically scolding the entire American population. And, and again, you can't say that. No. Yeah, yeah, it's something that's absolutely true, but you can't go and say it. Completely. Yeah. And, and I mean, on top of it, Amer- the American public, and maybe it wasn't like this then, but now the American public looks to the president to lead and change things. Mm-hmm. With this, Carter's saying, you need to make the change. I'm not going to make the change. I'm the president. I'm telling you, you need to make a change. Yeah, even, I, I think that was unique to Carter, because FDR, yeah. even with his fireside chats, he had an ebullience and a confidence. So he, funny, he's given a speech about the crisis of confidence, but he doesn't seem very confident himself. Mm-hmm. It kind of went over like a lead balloon, didn't it? I it mean, did. Yeah. I mean, his his rating, his approval ratings dropped into the low mm-hmm. 30s. Yeah. They were low before that, but the American public's confidence in our president and leading our mm-hmm. country at a very, very crazy time in, in U.S. history history and the Cold War was not strong. Um, On top of that, the economy was very anemic. It wasn't quite in recession, but soon to go into a recession. The inflation was out of control. Actually, in 19, I think it was 1980, the um, inflation rate was 13.5%. That's unbelievable. Yeah. As a result, the Fed raised interest rates. And as a result, people stopped buying things because Interest prime rate was like twenty one percent, which killed the economy. So it's stagnation. Yeah, all of that together really set up America to look to be looking for something, something to turn the tide. Well, and you also have you had what was going on in the Soviet Union. I mean, they had just invaded Afghanistan. They had yes, yeah. they were under what they their leader Brezhnev. 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 Yeah, yeah. Um, my, my my Soviet pronunciations. You get to pick on me in a second. <laughs> Brez, Brezhnev. Well, Brezhnev, he, the Brezhnev Doctrine is what it's what mm-hmm. it's known as now, claimed that the USSR had the right to violate the sovereignty of any country attempting to replace Marxist-Leninism with capitalism. So that had been their approach. In Afghanistan in 1978, there was a revolution that put in a modern, a more modern government that had made reforms to make it a more capitalist country. In 1980, the USSR said, nope, and they invaded and put in their own leader that was a communist sympathizer and um, basically turned Afghanistan back to a communist country. Actually, I shouldn't say back to a communist country, but reversed the um, reforms that had been done. Um, Again, Carter said that it wasn't right and we shouldn't do it, but we didn't really do anything. We supported the other side, but we didn't go in like Russia did. It's going to sound like we're picking on Carter here, but we're really not. No. You, you have to frame it in the, in the time we had. Vietnam was a 10-year experience where we fought a proxy war, and he couldn't do anything. Politically, he couldn't do anything. The, the economy wouldn't support another war. And we kind of just said, okay, Soviets, it's your turn. We saw, I mean, I mean we're in the middle of it right now. Uh, still, you know, we saw after post-9-11 what trying to fight a war in Afghanistan looks like. And the Soviets had massive troops, they had tanks, they had, but they were mm-hmm. not ready for an insurgency. And we saw that that's what they were going to do. And we just kind of said, okay, great. And, right. we, and we helped them out and started chipping away. But immediately, that hadn't taken form yet. And we 
kind of just looked at it like this is another failure and the Soviets are, are taking over the world. Completely. Yeah. I mean, Nicaragua was another another oh, example oh, yes. of that. There was an, a revolution there that was backed by the KGB. They ousted a pro-American government. They were falling left and right. Mm-hmm. And and you're right. I mean, I, I don't mean to pick on Carter. I just mean, you know, just looking at holistically, the country was... We're setting the stage mm-hmm. for this match. You know, mm-hmm. that's what we're ultimately getting back mm-hmm. to. And at the time, Russia, you know, their economy um, had been pretty soaring. You know, it was starting to fade a little bit, but it was robust. They were going into these countries, taking them over. You know, even at the time, Russia was... It looked like Russia could win. I mean, it really did look like Russia could win the Cold War. It looked like they were winning the Cold War. Yeah, and the U.S. was primed for something. So I think that leads up to our moment, our yeah, American yeah. moment. So I think it's important to maybe explain why the Soviets were so good at hockey. And if I'm going to I'm going to sound like I'm gushing and I'm going to be <laughs> guilty 100% because doing some research there was a couple of really good documentaries I watched one was called Red Army just watching these guys play you ever see that the flock of birds that just moves around in concert and there's no reason yeah. why they yeah that's the way they look efficiency when they, yeah they, well it's just fluid it's dynamic i mean yep. The, the Soviets played hockey the way that it should be played, elegance and a lot of sophistication. What was interesting to me is the Soviets didn't really get into hockey as a country until the 50s, after after World War II. They played really? a, yeah, they played a, a sport called bandy, which was pretty limited contact. You know, it was a ball on the ice. And after, after World War II, as we all know, the Soviets decided sometimes using HGH, but they decided <laughs> that they wanted to dominate the world in every way, and one, one way was through sports. So they they created a crack program after World War II to create the Soviet hockey program, and the way that it worked was they framed the national team around the army, so they called it the Red Army mm-hmm. Team, and that gave them the advantage of they would draft the players. They would they would hold tryouts, and they would find the best players in the Soviet Union, and they would draft them into the army. And guess what? If you're drafted in the army, you don't leave until they tell you mm-hmm. it's time to leave. It was eleven months at the camp, training camp, and thirty six nights they was home. They never get out of that camp. They always fight against Tikhonov to let us leave home. But he said, this is the style of my team, and this is the style of uh, Soviet sport in the, in the Soviet Union. Communist women. Yeah, so these guys would be would be drafted into, into the army, made officers, and they would be sequestered in a training facility for 11 out of 12 months a year. Very rarely saw their family. And this sounds terrible, but actually for the, the players really got... A lot of great perks, you know, nice mm-hmm. apartments, nice cars, things like that. Yes, they missed their family, but they were stars. But they they were amateurs, right? Yeah, they were they're, they're amateurs. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's just amazing that that, that they got away with uh-huh. that. You know, I, I just I yeah, they live better than almost everybody else in Russia. Yeah, yeah, you have to look at. You even look at other Olympians at the time, and as you said, sports were very important to Soviets. And um, Olympians were put on a pedestal above everybody mm-hmm. else. You talk to other Olympians that were non-hockey players, and they talk about how the hockey players were treated so much better than mm-hmm. 
even them. Oh yeah, it's amazing. I mean, they the Soviets looked at hockey as a form of warfare, you know, <laughs> without using bullets. So these guys would be drafted into the army and controlled by the army, and their their tenure would be ridiculous. So in the U.S., you go to college, you're you're in the NHL. It's a very fluid. You you have freedom. But these guys, later in their careers, guys like Slava Fetisov and Larionov would want to get out of the Soviet Union, and they would have to vary. If they did this under Brezhnev's era, they would have been in a gulag. But but they, uh, during Glasnost, which was openness and under Gorbachev's reforms, they had to literally fight to get out of their army contracts and to be able to leave. Right. But it's very much the polar opposite of the way it is in the U.S., so these guys would be trained ruthlessly. We, we joke about two-a-days, mm-hmm. you know, for football teams in the, in the United States. These guys would have three-a-days and just ruthless weight training and just some of the craziness. And, and it actually started pretty cool because the godfather of Russian hockey, a guy named Tarasov, you know, had a lot of kind of cool training methods. But then he fell out with Brezhnev. He did something wrong in one of the games in Brezhnev said we're out so he he <laughs> got rid of Tarasov and and hired a guy called Tikhanov to be the coach who actually ended up coaching the team in the in the 1980 Olympics and he was a ruthless dictator and the guys hated him but got man, results it got results so speaking of results since 1954 huh. seven out of ten Olympics they won gold that's amazing they medaled in every Olympics it's amazing but a lot, these guys played as a unit. There, there was no fluidity of the players like there are in the United States. Where you in the U.S., you really have to catch these guys at the right time since they are amateurs. You're not mm-hmm. gonna, at the time you couldn't have NHL players playing, so it had to be a guy who's in right. college, right? These guys had so Bar- Boris Mikhailov, one of their most famous players yeah. in the 1980 Olympics, 12 years. On the same team. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Played in three Olympics. So you have so Slava Fetisov, a lot, so Larionov, uh, Krutov, these younger guys who are going to be known as the Russian Five later, they played in multiple Olympics together, together too, as a line, which is amazing. So, yeah. and, it, and it's again, it's that control over their life. Well, you saw it. You saw it in, yeah. in their play. Yeah. You know, even you, you saw it even like before in the exhibition match, before yeah. the Olympics. Yeah. Which I'm sure you'll get into. Yeah. These guys over, and I can gush because I'm a hockey dork, but mm-hmm. I'll move on. But these guys from 1956 to 1992 had an Olympic record of 62-6-2. It's amazing. So we've dove into a little bit into what made the Soviets great. Where was the U.S. at the time? The U.S. was just kind of beleaguered. They weren't really expecting to do much of anything. They, they just didn't want to get embarrassed in the tournament. Right. They hired a coach named Herb Brooks, mm-hmm. who himself had played on the 1960 team. That won against... And that won. It was an upset at Squaw Valley in mm-hmm. 1960 against the Soviets. That was kind of a miracle back then, but it wasn't as much. You know, the dominance was there. It was forming, but it wasn't what it, what it was in 1980. Okay. He famously got cut right before the team went to the Olympics. And that's something that really stuck in his craw. And he actually used that as a fear tactic against the team in the 1980 Olympics, basically saying, hey, you're all expendable at any given time. He would threaten to cut the, the captain, Michael Ruzioni, Jim yeah. Craig. So he had he had tryouts, but he had a really good idea of who he wanted on his team. He used a lot of psychological testing to see how these guys would hold up under pressure. 
It's really interesting. Well, yeah. I, it doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but if you hate the coach, it can really band a team together. I mean, my best yeah. hockey coach was really kind of a hard ass. But yeah. yeah. They, he pushed people to the limit. Yeah. But so this guy, prior to getting the job, he was University of Minnesota coach. He won three NCAA titles in the, in the 70s. And he just decided that, okay, we have to change the way we play. There was a, in the United States, there was a thug style. Like the, you know, I'm a Flyers fan, so I, <laughs> I, I kind of love the Broad Street Bullies, the lore there. But that was really kind of the style of play that was getting our butts kicked by the Soviets because they would just skate around us. Yeah. You know, if you could catch them, that's great. You can knock them over. But a lot of times they just take the puck away from you and skate away. You could see it. It was amazing. The Soviets would come in and do uh, this thing called the Challenge Cup where they would come play our, our all-stars. Mm-hmm. And they would they beat us because we were just a bunch of individuals and they were playing as, as a honed unit. But Brooks really t- t- looked at that and saw hey, we got to play the European style. Sure, the, we'll clean their clock when we can, but we can't just be, we can't just have goons. We have to be able to skate. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, have, we have to adapt the Soviet European style. And that's really what he did. He, he skated the hell out of these guys. I mean, just really conditioning was the cornerstone of it. He basically decided we're not going to be the most talented, but we are going to be mm-hmm. in great shape. Yep. And that was what they would need to do to skate with the Soviets. So going into the, the tournament, the team was not was not really supposed to go into the medal round. For those people who don't know how the, the Olympics work, there's a group there's group play, and then there's the medal round. So if if you win enough games in the group play, you go right. to the medal round. Back at that time, it was a round robin as well, and all the stats from the group play also affected the outcome, that. which we'll come into play in a little bit. So. We were supposed to be the fifth best team, at best. Well, yeah. I didn't know fifth. That's better than I thought we yeah, were, Well, actually. Yeah, well, I mean, they're, they're, Japan was in, it, in there, too. <laughs> and, and they were not known for their hockey. Sure. Yeah, they lost 16 to nothing to the Soviets. Oh, my uh, God. So we get there, and Lake Placid was kind of a little microcosm of how much of a mess in America was. The buses weren't working right. They mm-hmm. We couldn't get our transportation system p- figured out. The players would wait hours to catch buses to go back to the Olympic Village. The roadways yeah. were clogged. Late, I don't know if you've been to Lake Placid. They were before. probably waiting for gas. They, they probably uh, in fair, line for fair. gas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's a good point. Have you been to Lake Placid before? I haven't. Uh, it's just an awesome little town, but it is a little town, right? Yeah. And it just we were getting egg on our face from the way we we're running the Olympics. Just you add know, to we, we get add there. to it. So okay, so prior to the Olympics starting up. We had actually played the Soviets the week before, and and I don't know if that's something that Herb Brooks really insisted on, but we played at Madison Square Garden, mm-hmm. and we got our clocks cleaned, ten to three. Yeah, you mm. see, I, I haven't seen the whole game, but they show clips of it, and it's just amazing. It's like our players are just standing, standing like statues, and and Russia's just. <laughs> Skating yeah. around us and making goals. Yeah, Mike Silk said, "Wow, that, that those are great goals. Like <laughs> they felt like they were they were yeah. they, they were just spectators." Al Michaels said that ten to three made it look closer than it was. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it could have been four times that. So that that's kind of what the expectations were. Like, mm-hmm. okay, great, these guys are playing good, but they're still going to get their clocks cleaned by the Soviet Union. Absolutely. Adding to that, the Soviets had played the Challenge Cup. Against the, the NHL All Stars and shut them out six to nothing. Our yeah. our professionals who can't even yeah. play. Yeah, but you know what? I think what I think what happened was playing them at Madison Square Garden really got their jitters out. 
I, I truly believe if that game hadn't happened, that game would have happened in yep. in the Olympics. No, I completely yeah. agree. Because now they just looked at them as they're human beings, right? We even though, even though they lost it, that's kind of weird to say. But they, no, they played them. I mean, it's it's like any it's mm-hmm. like any sport. You yeah. play a team, you get to know them. Like when the Jacksonville Jaguars play any other team in the, in the <laughs> NFL. <laughs> But the other thing is, Herb Brooks started having fun with it a little bit after that. Like, look at these guys. They're Wait over a minute. Herb was having fun? I know, I know. Well, that so they apparently he had all these things. And he had a lot of them, but none of them I can say on this podcast because <laughs> he was kind of a raunchy dude. Yeah. But he would start making fun of the Soviets after that, you know, saying stuff like, oh, they're here to buy jeans. They're not here to win a game. And rightfully so. A lot of the Soviet players had kind of said that the game had not it wasn't fun for them anymore. They were so used to winning. It, back in Russia, they'd play the Moscow team once a week. And if they lost, they would just be punished severely. So it, winning was expected. It wasn't something they enjoyed we, anymore. You'd yeah. see these games and they'd mm-hmm. score and there'd mm-hmm. be no celebration at all. Because yeah. they're expected to score. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, the Olympics are starting out as a little bit of a disaster from an organization standpoint. And the tournament starts. And in the, the group play... The U.S. started out playing against Sweden, which was one of the best teams. And they were down 2-1 to one until basically the last minute. They pulled Jimmy Craig. And for those who you don't know how hockey works, if you're, if you're down in a, at the end of the game, you can pull the goalie to get an extra skater, but you have an empty net. So you're skating 6-on-5. And they did, and they managed to score and tie the game up. 2-1 Sweden. The concerned look on the face of U.S. head coach, Herb Brooks, the United States trailing two to one, the final seconds. Now Harrington goes out, Pavlich comes in, slap shot by Ramsey, is blocked in front. Baker, number six, to Schneider, Buzz, back of the net, fighting for control of the puck, with 29 seconds to play, Baker! Which doesn't sound great. It doesn't sound interesting, but that would have really put them behind the eight ball. And the little known fact, if they hadn't done that and everything else stayed the same, they would have not won the gold medal. Oh, interesting. Even after beating the Soviets head to head, they would have not because all the all the stats from the group play carry over. The goal, the Soviet goal differential was so in their favor that they that that would have been the tiebreaker, and Team USA would have won the silver. It was a perfect storm. Yeah, it was. Then the next game was a major upset against the Czechs. Number two ranked. Yes, number two ranked. They were the second best team in the tournament. And this was one of those moments where America got a good look at their hockey coach. Some people really knew him, but America really wasn't paying attention to the team at this point until, okay, great, we we skated away from, you know, with a tie against Sweden, but against the Czechs. Mm-hmm. They were supposed to run us over, and we destroyed them, seven to three. And they got a yeah. good look at Herb Brooks because at one point, one of the Czech players cheap shot one of our players, and the camera pans to Herb Brooks. Shaken up with the play in the American end. Looks like it's a, an arm or a shoulder injury. There's the hit at the blue line. I think the uh, problem with the hit was the, the puck was uh, quite a bit in the other direction, and I don't expect that Mark Johnson was really expecting it. Oh, look. Very nice contact. Skip right for the stroke. Herb Brooks. Not quite as glorious. 
He is just using language that would make a sailor blush. And he threatened to take his stick and shove it down one of the Czech players' throats. Maybe that's not appropriate, but that fire mm-hmm. is what we were looking for. There was no yeah. fire he, in America. Piss and vinegar. And yep. apparently America really, after seeing that guy who was ready to shove a stick down another player's throat for, yep. for cheap shotting one of our players, just showed some piss and vinegar that we really had been missing as a country. So after that, we beat the best two players in our group, and then we go on to beat West Germany, Romania, and Norway, and finish 4-0-1 in group play. Amazing. And the Soviets, they cruised through. Destroyed. They, what, yeah. what did you say that the score against Japan was? 16 to nothing. Yeah, that's crazy. And they managed to beat the Netherlands 17-4. to At least they scored. Mm, the Netherlands have a power hockey team. Though. Yeah, they do. <laughs> anyway, so, so we get to the medal round, and America is really starting to latch on to this, to this team. And we're playing the Soviets in the first game. And Al Michaels gets tasked to, to cover the game. Little known fact, he wanted to cover speed skating. Because the, the story going into the Olympics <laughs> was there was a guy named Eric Hayden who was angling to become the first American to win five gold medals in one sitting, which he actually did. That world record holder, Evgeny Kulikov of the Soviet Union. But Eric Hayden never really let him have a chance here. Now, Eric Hyden moving from the outside to the inner. Gives him a chance to set up the turn, right, Sheila? And that's so important so that he stays on that snow lane. And it looks like he did an excellent job of it. Hyden coming a little bit wide. He came wide on the inner lane. Eric Hyden has the lead as he crosses the finish line at 38.03. And so much for the Olympic record, 38.37 for Kulikov. But that was the plum yeah, job. you don't know that story, No right? one knows that story. <laughs> but it, this guy was amazing. amazing. I mean, if you're him, you're, you're like, guys, did you have to do it this year? You right. know, you know, this was my Sweet 16 party, and you ruined it for me. But in all seriousness, everyone was angling to get that job. But Al Michaels made the mistake of telling producers that I like hockey, and I've actually called one game before. So him and Ken Dryden, who is one of the a goalie from the Montreal Canadiens, mm-hmm. were the broadcast team for this. And this game becomes more about, uh, almost as much about Al Michaels as it becomes about the, the team itself. So the game wasn't broadcasted live. A lot of people who thought it was, uh, who thought they were watching it, it was on tape delay. They, they thought they were watching it live. It actually started at 5 p.m. local time. We wanted to move it to 8 so it would, so it would be broadcasted live, but the Soviets said no, you know, because they, 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 that would be... 4 a.m. Moscow time yeah. versus 1 a.m., which I don't really understand why that's that big of a difference. But it's the it, TV hour. In yeah, Russia. but it, it wasn't. It, it was wasn't, their hour before they it, went to get their porridge. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, it was the hour before they stood in line to get their stood porridge. Stood in line to get yeah. their porridge. <laughs> yeah. But it wasn't aired live in the Soviet Union either. The game, the game starts. People are singing God Bless America. And in the first period, the Soviets strike first. And it, it just looks like, you know, this is going to be another game. Mm-hmm. So the Soviets strike first, then the Americans strike back, and all of the Americans' goals were kind of, they weren't really great goals. A lot right, of them they were, were kind of lucky shots. Yeah, it was, it was, and I'll get into how crazy the, stati- the statistics were at the end, mm-hmm. but at the end of the first period, 
the the Soviets were were up two to one, and we kind of looked like, okay, great, we're only going to go in, into the locker room down two to one. You see an interview by the Soviet the Soviets, and they're like, well, the period's over, and they almost start skating off the ice. So then toward, towards the the end of the the first period, I think there's like five seconds left. We basically dumped it into their zone, right. and Trediak, who's the world's best goalie, misplayed the rebound, and Mark Johnson hustled, 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 and managed just to get the rebound that he played wrong and slipped it past him yeah. and with one second left. Again, another lucky shot, but yeah. it was almost a turning point. Yeah, so Trediak was mm. just the best goalie in the world, and he had just given up two goals. And the Soviets protested, and this was a big deal because you looked up at it happened so fast, and you looked at, at the scoreboard, and there was no time left. So right. the Soviets were screaming. Mikhailov and Tikhonov were screaming at, at the refs and to no avail. The, the goal stood. And if you look back, it, it really was scored with one second left. So they went back. They went into the locker room 2-2. Two to two. Second period, they benched Tridiak, and Which is huge. I mean, that's amazing. And Tikhonov, the coach, later said it was the biggest mistake of his career. You know, Herb Brooks famously said they just took the best goalie and just put him on the bench. Right. But they, they had a really good backup, Michigan, who came in. And for the second period, the Soviets scored a goal, but Michigan didn't let anything in. And they were up 3-2 to two going into the, th- into the third period. I mean, at this point, you know, at this point, it really, it almost feels like a win because we're playing so much better than we have against them before, right? Yeah. I mean, we probably would have been happy losing by one. <laughs> so the thing is, were, were we playing that much better, though? Because seven minutes into the third period, we had only had two shots on goal. From the second Maybe not period, playing uh, better, yeah, but well, at least a better score. <laughs> well, this really comes into it. Jimmy Craig, our goalie, was amazing. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's, there's a hockey parlance called standing on your head, which basically means you are playing amazing. And he was making just unbelievable saves. By this point, we'd only had two shots on Michigan, the, the backup goalie, for you know the entire second period and seven minutes into the third period. So we had no offense. We were stagnant. We were basically just playing defense, and our heads were on, on a swivel. So seven minutes in, the Soviets get a penalty, and we get a power play, which means one of their guys sits in penalty box. And so we have an extra skater, and we... In another fluky goal. It was just kind of like it bounced off a couple guys and went right on Mark Johnson's stick, and he put it right past Michigan. Mm-hmm. What game's, game's tied. No, no one can believe it. And it's about eight minutes into into the third period, and we're, we're tied against the Soviet Union. Yeah. And a lot of people watch a lot of hockey. These guys have defied all odds even being in this game. It's so unbelievable how... The Soviets weren't able to score. At the end of the game, the Soviets had 39 shots on goal. We had 16 total, four of which went in. So anyway, a few minutes later, the most famous moment in Mike Ruzioni's life, the team captain for Team USA. Snyder, buzz, long slap shot, saved by Muskin. The U.S. team is depending a little bit too much now on Jim Craig. He's making too many good saves. Ruzioni scores! Mike Ruzioni! They threw a shot on <laughs> on the net, and the goalie was screened, and it went in. Yep. So we're up, we're up four to three, but guess what? There's ten minutes left. That's and, a lot of time. Yeah, and and you got to assume, okay, we're not getting any more goals than four, and the the team was excited, but at the end of the day, they're like, "What? Well, this is, ten minutes is a long time against these guys to, to stop them from scoring." So basically, they go into 
they circled the wagons. Yeah, I mean, it's not like they weren't trying to score, but they were just in complete defense mode as a team. Jim Craig makes just save after save after save after save. And then towards the end of the game, I mean, they just keep looking up at the scoreboard. Right. And, and Herb is yelling at them to play Hold their on. game, play their game, play their game. And then, you know, they're, they're playing short shifts. And then the conditioning always shows up in the third period, you know, and, and it did in this case too. And they were able to out-hustle the Soviets and really hang on. Yeah, I mean, they were 21, too, right? Yeah, (laughs) and then I don't know if you've seen a live broadcast of this, but I watched it, but Al Michaels is, this is really where he comes into his own, and he is just, he's getting so animated and so excited. It's so funny to see Al Michaels like that because he's so so calm (laughs) and the straight guy on the NFL now, you know, just to see him that excited. Exactly, (laughs) and and he he just starts getting nuts and, and getting so animated, and then the the clock's ticking down. We get to 11 seconds left, and he has his famous call. So so we win, right? We 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 beat the Soviet Union four to three. The place is going absolutely bonkers, crazy, bonkers. I mean, the whole country is going crazy. And we won the gold medal, right? No. Well, no. No, not yet. No? What happens next? <laughs> so as you mentioned, this was the beginning of the medal rounds. Mm-hmm. So this, the winner of this would go on to play for the gold medal, right? So we won this game, but that didn't mean we won the gold. We had another match to play. And that was against Finland, who was a pretty good team. Even after that win, they were, they were, they were expected to win based on seeding. Mm-hmm. Um, we went into the game, you know, and at one, one point we were down. We were down 2-1, I think, at the end of the second mm-hmm. period. It looked like we weren't going to win. And again, we, we scored three goals and without Finland scoring anything and, and beat Finland 4-2. And America won the gold medal. Yeah. And one, one of the coolest things that happened afterwards was the medal ceremony. You had Michael <laughs> Ruzioni up, uh, up there by himself. And back right. then, you know, now the teams line up. In that year... You had uh, Mike Ruzioni up there himself, and he's he didn't know what to do. They didn't tell him what to do, so he just he pointed at his team and said, "Come on up here, guys!" On the little podium, yeah, on the little podium. Right. So they all kind of jumped up there and had this humongous group hug on the podium. And the cool thing I saw was the Soviet players' faces. Not only after they won the mm-hmm. game, they almost kind of looked at it like, "Wow, cool." Yeah. yeah you, did you notice that? I mean, you look yeah. at. I did. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I I was obviously we were three or two i was paying a lot of attention yeah yeah at that time but but watching the documentaries (laughs) now you see these russian players talking about how it was almost a moment for them Mm -hmm. i mean that moment quickly passed when they were berated and they got got thrown in in the gulag yeah Yeah. exactly but that moment was amazing and you talked about the podium you know after that they stopped doing podiums on the ice yeah in the olympics yeah so we won just a quick update on what happened after that right the u.s didn't win against Russia over the next couple of years. I mean, it was it was a moment. It, it was, was a truly a fluke. It was a fluke. And yeah. but I mean, there were some good players. Thirteen of the twenty players mm-hmm. went on to the NHL. They all, many of them, had careers for many many years in the NHL. And and it's still known as probably the one of, if not the greatest, moment in American sports history. I can't really think of anything yeah. else that really rivals it. It you still know, gives you the chills whenever you see it. It does. On the Soviet side, they went on to win the silver. They destroyed 
game have they played? Can't remember. I don't know. It wasn't Japan though. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was the Netherlands. Maybe it was the Netherlands. <laughs> it was the Netherlands. Anyway, the Russians went on to win the silver mm-hmm. in a dominating fashion, mm-hmm. but they didn't win the gold, and that was a loss. Mm-hmm. You know, they went back to Russia and had to answer questions. Why did they lose? And there was no answer. It was truly a fluke. And there was a re revamping of the team after that. I mean, Tikhonov, the coach was nervous when he went to go meet with Brezhnev. And I would be too. And apparently Brezhnev just said, don't worry, I know you're better than the Americans. Which was very... Brezhnev was not a nice dude. Well, he was at the end of his life, maybe he was... And he was probably half of the bag, senality. too. Yeah. Senality. 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 Another new word we've Another, created. That's yes. the word we've created yeah. for today. Look at us expanding yeah. the American lexicon. Yeah, very much so. But they would they would go on to win medal after medal. And they, they won out for the rest of the Soviet Union in its existence. And the team got much better after after the 1980s. It was maybe inspiration for yeah. them. The, the best team that ever came out of that was power yeah. line called from Fatisov. And we finished seventh. In 1984, just by the way. But we had Reagan by then, so we were... were, eh. Well, you know, and and that's a good segue, Mm -hmm. Adam. I mean, why is this an American moment? I mean, this is an American moment because, as we discussed, we were in need of something, a spark, something. It felt like we were losing the Cold War. And I don't want to say that this game changed the tide, but the timing of it was a spark. And our leadership at the time, Reagan was emerging, and Reagan was was a hard ass. I mean, he was a hard ass against the Russians. When he was running for president, he had a famous quote that he said. He said, my idea of an American policy towards the Soviet Union is simple. And some would say simplistic. He said, it is this, we win and they lose. What do you think of that? So in your discussions of the nuclear freeze proposals, I urge you to beware the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely Uh, declaring yourselves above it all and label both sides equally at fault to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. You know, it's funny. We were so young back then. It, I do remember my parents freaking out when, when we beat the Soviet Union. My parents weren't big hockey fans. And it just shows you... We were just getting kicked in the teeth as as, yeah. as a country, and and what no matter what you think about Reagan, that's a different show. It uh, is. It, it, it was a turning point for America, one way or another. I mean, it completely was. You mm-hmm. know, to to further that, it, again, it was a spark, but the timing was right. I mean, Reagan and Margaret Thatcher joined together. You know, two of the you could argue the United Kingdom was not a superpower at the time, but two of the largest political. Well, they Entities. did beat Argentina in the Falklands War. Don't forget that. The Falklands War. <laughs> that is true. That's a big one. Yeah. We should have a podcast on that. Yeah, it, well, I, how we turn that into an American moment, I'm not sure. but <laughs> I'm sure but, we'll find a way. But, um, but they joined together against Russia. Mm-hmm. You know, at the same time, Russia really was starting, their economy was starting to decline. And we didn't know that. That's no, the we thing. didn't. And, and, and that, Brezhnev died in 1982. Mm-hmm. And Gorbachev was or Gorbachev was later, wasn't he? Well, so and Anderpov came in after that. I think okay. he was the head of the KGB, if I recall. But but these guys just started dying like flies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because everybody they had killed everybody in the 1930s, <laughs> right? So there was there was no one left. There was no one left. There was. Yeah. I mean, all the leaders were all within the same age. These young, you know, in the 30s, these young Russians became the leaders of the country, 
and now they're in their 70s. They've been leading the country for 40 years. They start dying, and there's nobody there to take over. Well, Stalin had a big purge in the 30s. Okay, that, and that's I think he had another yeah. one in the 50s. If I don't, No, he didn't because he, was, he died in 52, I think. But Reagan would famously say... I can't get anywhere with the Russians because all their premiers keep dying. There's no one for me to <laughs> negotiate with. Gorbachev became, you know, I think he was the first one who didn't serve in World War II. Sure. Yeah, the, the first premier that didn't serve in World War II. Yeah. And, and things really were changing. But as closed as the Soviet Union was, there was really no way to know that they were declining. Reagan scared them so much that they spent such an exorbitant amount on their... Defense industry. 25% yeah. of their budget. Oh, that's how much it was? Yeah. Wow. I mean, it really, really helped with the collapse of the Soviet Union. All because we beat the Soviet Union and that's like all placid. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, we, we've said it again and again. Obviously, that didn't really contribute to the fall of Russia. But from an American moment perspective, that was a turning point. And what happened after that, while it was most likely not related to the hockey game, mm-hmm. that's... That moment was the start of the U.S. winning the Cold War. Yeah. No, very, very, very true. So we hope you enjoyed this American moment on the Miracle on Ice. I know Adam and I did. Adam probably more than me. Well, maybe a little bit. But Mm -hmm. I did enjoy it, too. We want to give a big thanks to the Underscore Orchestra for letting us use their song Americana Jam. They do Balkan music, <laughs> which I don't understand, but it's what 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 that genre is. But it is awesome. Isn't and, Balkan like a Russian a region in Russia? Yes, the and that's Balkans? what I don't understand. But these guys are actually a lot of them. They're all over the country, and they get together and tour, and they are totally awesome. You can check them out on iTunes. Please do. Yeah. And what are we? What's our next show that we're doing? Our next show is going to be the American moment is a little bit lighter. A little bit, yeah. Uh, which is the premiere of Survivor, the reality television show in the U.S., um, and how it's affected our our television watching habits. Yes, it's definitely taking a, a little bit of a turn for the last. Yes. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Thanks so much.